In the mid to late 1500s, the Roman Catholic Church launched what is known as the Counter-Reformation in response to the Protestant Reformation. And I would say the most notable event of the Counter-Reformation was what is known as the Council of Trent, where somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 Roman Catholic officials, primarily bishops, gathered over a period of 18 years, nearly 20 years. They kept gathering in these ecumenical meetings, and what they did was they passed sweeping decrees on self-reform, and they created dogmatic definitions that clarified virtually every doctrine contested by the Protestants. And one of the many things that, that Protestants contested was the Roman Catholic view of eternal security. The Roman Catholics taught, and still do today, that believers can lose their salvation if they don't do things like submit to the Pope, things like follow the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church, etc. Protestants responded by teaching that believers cannot lose their salvation because salvation is not based on popes, it's not based on traditions, it's not based on the Roman Catholic Church, but on Scripture alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. The five solas came out of the Reformation. During session six of the Council of Trent, the officials implemented several canons or rulings that, that seek to undo or reverse the Protestant teachings on eternal security. Listen to canons 14, 15, 16, and 30. Canon 14, if anyone says that man is truly absolved from his sins and justified because he believes he is absolved and justified, and that by his faith or by faith alone, absolution and justification are affected, let him be cursed. The impact of this statement is, is astronomical. What they are essentially saying is that we are not justified by faith alone. We're justified by what we do and what we believe. And justification by faith alone is the, it's the doctrine that the fruit of eternal security comes out of. Now listen to Canon 15. If anyone says that a man who is born again and justified believes that he is assuredly in the number of the predestinate, the elect, let him be cursed. In other words, if you've been born again by the Holy Spirit, if you're a saved person and you now believe that you're a part of the chosen race of God, the elect, His church, the bride, and all of that, you're cursed if you believe that of yourself. You can't possibly be part of the predestinate just because you've been born again and justified. Canon 16, if anyone says that he will of an absolute and infallible certainty, have the great gift of perseverance unto the end, unless he has learned this by special revelation. What is that special revelation? Unless the Pope decrees it. Let him be cursed. Anyone who is, 
who says that he is absolved of his sins and he will certainly, certainly persevere till the end, let that person who says that and believes that of himself be cursed. Canon 30. If anyone says that after the grace of justification has been received by penitent sinners, that there remains not any debt of temporal punishment to be discharged either in this world or in the next in purgatory before the entrance into the kingdom of heaven can be opened to him, let him be anathema, cursed. One prominent Catholic apologist, Roman Catholic apologist, described the Protestant doctrine of eternal security as one of the great deceptions to fall upon man. So which camp is correct? The Roman Catholic camp, basically who deny and fully deny eternal security, you know, the whole idea of once you're saved, you're always saved, which is really a reduced way to describe it and probably not respectful and honoring to the word, but they don't believe it. They reject it. Is that camp right? Or the Protestants who proclaim it and uphold it? Well, the goal this morning is not to pick a camp. I mean, I know what camp I like. I know what camp I'm in. But I'm not here to tout a camp. I'm not here to tout any of those things. We haven't come together to figure out what side we're on. We've come together to search the teachings of Scripture to resolve spiritual matters. That's why we come together every Sunday. God has spoken very clearly on the issue of eternal security, especially in the text we have before us this morning. Now, two Sundays ago, we looked at the summons of the Good Shepherd, how he effectually calls his sheep to himself. And then last Sunday, we looked at the salvation of the Good Shepherd, how he saves his sheep through his death, burial, and resurrection. This morning, we are going to look at the security of the Good Shepherd, how he keeps his sheep eternally secure in the salvation he graciously gives them. If you'd be so kind, please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Our focus this morning will be verses 22 through 30. One more time, John chapter 10, 22 through 30. I'm going to give you five S's this morning. Five S's. We're going to look at, number one, the setting. Verses 22 and 23. Number two, the solicitation. Verse 24. Number three, the statement. Verses 25 and 26. Number four, the sheep. That'll be in verse 27. And then lastly, number five, the security. In verses 28 through 30. Let's begin with the first S. Number one, the setting. Verses 22 through 23. It says, At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Now, the first thing to note here is that there is a gap of about two months between verses 21 and 22. Obviously, verse 21 is where we left off last week in our exposition of the Gospel of John. 
Verse 21 is tied to the Feast of Booths. Verse 22 is tied to the Feast of Dedication. How much time is between these two feasts? Approximately two months. Now, what did Jesus do during this two-month period? Well, some commentators say that He was outside of Jerusalem doing ministry, which was His custom at times, while others say that He was still in the city doing ministry. Both views are merely speculative because the Gospels do not record what Jesus did during that period. I'd like to think that He was investing in His disciples because that's what He did when He wasn't out doing ministry. So two months has passed since the healing of the man born blind, and we now find Jesus at the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem. What is the Feast of Dedication? Well, the Feast of Dedication was an eight-day winter festival celebrated by the Jews in the month of December, or sometimes in late November, depending on when it fell on the lunar-solar Jewish calendar. Today, this festival is called Hanukkah, or the Festival of Lights. Now, the history of the Feast of Dedication goes back to the period between the Old and New Testaments and the Maccabean Revolt. We call that period the Intertestamental Period. So it dates all the way back to that time. After the Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes profaned the Jewish temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar, probably the worst possible thing you could do there, obviously, and he also forced the Jews to abandon their sacrifices and adopt pagan rituals, a group of Jewish freedom fighters, uh, the Maccabees, rose up, defied the oppressive pagan regime, and overthrew the Seleucids. The temple was then rededicated, cleansed and rededicated to God. Ever since then, the Feast of Dedication has been celebrated to commemorate this meaningful event in Jewish history. So, the setting, this is just phenomenal, the setting for Jesus' subsequent teachings on how He, the Good Shepherd, keeps His sheep eternally secure is the Feast of Dedication, which commemorates God defeating His people's enemies and leading them through the darkness of persecution. How apropos. Think about the connection there. Calvin wrote, Christ appeared in the temple at this time, or at that time, according to His custom, uh, that His preaching might yield more abundant fruit amidst a large assembly of men. Notice the detail in verse 23. It was winter. Winter is the rainy season in ancient Israel and currently Palestine, which is part of it, and which is kind of a fictitious name applied by the world. But it was the rainy season of ancient Israel, and it is today. So it actually rains there, even though it looks very, very dry. And the fact that it's the rainy season might explain why Jesus was walking in the colonnade of Solomon. He might have been trying to stay out of the elements, trying to stay dry. The colonnade of Solomon was a large covered patio located on the east side of the temple. It had large, tall stone columns and a pitched or flat roof. Another name for it is Solomon's portico. We see that in Acts 5.12. After Pentecost, the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came upon the church, this is where the early Christians met for worship. This was the first location for the gathering of the church 
next to the upper room where the 120 gathered. So this would have been the first kind of large setting gathering place for the church, which was very large at the time. And this, of course, changed when Saul the persecutor came and split that big church up. God used him to do that and to send it out on mission. Winter might also refer to Israel's spiritual climate. Um, Gerald Borchure wrote, A thoughtful reader of the gospel understands that time and temperature notations in John are reflections of the spiritual condition of the persons in the stories. Very interesting point. So that's number one. That's our setting. Feast of Dedication is playing out. Jesus has come to proclaim the gospel and more particularly the doctrine of eternal security, how he secures his sheep in light of this feast, which kind of talks about that. Pretty awesome. Let's look at number two. Now we have the solicitation. Verse 24 says, So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So as Jesus is walking in the colonnade, the Jews, and what does the Jews mean when we read the Jews in John's gospel? It's a reference to the religious leaders not the people as a whole. So as he's walking in the colonnade of Solomon, the Jews, the religious leaders, gathered around him. Gathered around him means encircled or surrounded in the Greek. Okay, so this is not like, hey, I just want to go over and ask him a question. Let's circle up and ask him. This is encircling him so he can't go anywhere else. They surrounded him. Like, you know, like, hey, come out of the building, you're surrounded. They've surrounded him. I have no idea where that reference came from. <laughs> I just imagined a robber in a bank, and I don't know. And, and what they actually did here was they accosted Jesus. To accost is to approach and speak to someone in an aggressive way. So this isn't friendly. This is not a friendly gathering. They've encircled him, they're infuriated, they're angry because of what he's been saying, especially in the last chapter, which was just a couple of months earlier, and they're, they're accosting him, they're speaking to him aggressively. I like to say that the religious leaders basically bum-rushed Jesus, closed it around him so that he couldn't go anywhere, and then solicited an answer from him, or better way to look at it would be demanded an answer from him. What did they say? My paraphrase, how long are you going to keep us in suspense, Jesus? Tell us plainly if you are the Christ. You've been going on and on and on about this stuff. Just tell us to our faces if you are the Christ. Now, were the Jews motivated by godly curiosity, a, a, a genuine spirit-led seeking? Were they Motivated, was their M.O. a sincere desire to know who Jesus is when they asked this question? Absolutely not. They were looking to trap Jesus. Why? Because he was the greatest threat to their power and prestige. Jesus not only exposed them as thieves and robbers who came to steal from the lost sheep of Israel and kill and destroy them spiritually, right, verses 8 through 10, he also touted himself as Israel's true and good shepherd. 
This infuriated the Jews, and they were looking for a way to discredit and dispose of him altogether. If Jesus answered, yes, I am the Christ, fine, I'll tell you, I am the Christ, they thought they could nail him for blasphemy, making a false claim about God. But Jesus wasn't afraid of them. Jesus spoke boldly before them. Jesus, this is what we see in the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of John. He, he even exposed their own sin and their own hypocrisy. So he's not at all afraid of them. He's not going to shrink back from declaring the counsel of God to them here. Let's look at number three. And now we have the statement. Verses 25 and 26 Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Jesus does not conceal that he is the Christ, and yet he doesn't teach them as if they were willing to learn. Instead, he rebukes them for being obstinate. They had... They had been taught the word, they had been taught the gospel, and they had been shown the works of God, miracles, signs and wonders, but made zero progress. And Jesus speaks of his, his works, his miracles, in order to convict them of being doubly obstinate. Well, you don't believe what I say, and you don't even believe in, in the works that I perform that validate what I say. Doubly obstinate for rejecting those works. I'll tell you, sinners possess the ability to, to actually sin themselves. We possess the ability to sin ourselves into a state where logic and reason do not exist, where truth is a lie, and lies are truth, where right is wrong and wrong is right, etc. Don't we see this in our culture today? We do. Everything is backwards. One commentator called it banana land. We live in banana land. I don't know what that means. Sounds good. And what the Bible does is it calls this, it calls this hardening or searing. As in the hardening of the heart or in the searing of the conscience. When you cook a good steak, it's important to first sear it on both sides over high heat because that locks in or seals in the juices, right? How many of you can cook a good steak? Only, okay, well, I'm going to your house. Everyone else, I'm not going to your house. In a very similar way, the heart of a person is hardened and their conscience is seared through perpetual sin. Sin turns people into virtual sociopaths who are incapable of discerning basic truths. The gospel it is a basic truth. And it, it, it makes them sociopaths in the sense that they are unaware of their own sin. They're unaware of their own wicked behavior. A seared conscience feels no guilt, no shame for wrongdoing. The hardening of the heart and the searing of the conscience is, for a lack of better words, the sealing of one's own doom. We see this with Pharaoh. God spoke truth to him and showed him many miracles through Moses. But every time he heard and saw, his heart became hardened. Why? Because of his sinful pride. When he finally let the Israelites go, his sin-seared conscience prompted him 
to recklessly chase after them. He wanted to retrieve them and bring them back with his army, but God drowned them in the sea. Pharaoh's hardened heart and seared conscience sealed his doom at the bottom of the sea in a watery tomb. The Jews were following in the footsteps of their Egyptian counterpart. They were sin-hardened, sin-seared, and headed for doom. Jesus warned them over and over and over. You remember what he said back in John 8, 21? I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Calvin again, Jesus twice repeats the words, you do not believe, in order to prove that of their own accord, they were deaf to doctrine and blind to works, which is proof of extreme and desperate malice. In verse 26, Jesus assigns a higher reason for why they do not believe in his doctrine or miracles, for why they do not believe in him as Messiah. And he simply says, you are not among my sheep. They were, as Calvin put it, reprobate. Reprobate is a theological term used to describe those whom God did not choose and predestinate unto salvation in eternity past. When God chose his people... He did not choose the entire human race. He chose from the human race. This is extraordinary in light of the fact that the entire human race is sinful, totally depraved, and hostile toward God. In other words, there are no good people. We're all bad. If God had chosen the entire human race, all of humanity would believe in Jesus, and there would be no Hades. There would be no hell. When God chose His people, He simultaneously left everyone else alone. Those whom He chose are called the elect. Those whom He left alone, the reprobate. Now, by definition, reprobate means sinful, corrupt, degenerate, etc. The term seems harsh, but consider what Jesus has been saying. Did He not call these Jews, these religious leaders, thieves and robbers, and then describe their mission to steal, kill, and destroy? Sounds pretty reprobate to me. The truth is, the entire human race is sinful. The entire human race is corrupt. The entire human race is degenerate. But not everyone is reprobate, left alone, left to enjoy their sin, left to celebrate their sin. Not everyone is in that condition or situation or designated unto that. Some have been chosen and predestined by God unto salvation. Now, if you think that God's decision to save some and leave others alone is unfair and potentially unjust, you're not alone. But keep in mind that God does not operate in accordance with human fairness. Nor do we really want equal justice for everyone because that means everyone goes to hell. God's plan is perfect and infallible, Psalm 18.30. And we should not presume to know better than God. To presume to know better than God on these matters or on any matter is literally the pinnacle of human ignorance. The Jews did not believe because they were not among Jesus' sheep. And their unbelief proved that they were not of his sheepfold. Let's look at number four. 
the sheep. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. These are the words of Jesus. Here, Jesus juxtaposes the behavior of those who surrounded him, the Jews, with his sheep. The Jews disbelieved, but my sheep hear my voice and follow me. Now let's break down these phrases. First one, my sheep. First thing that comes to mind to me is I've got to ask a question here. How did Jesus, the good shepherd, acquire his sheep? Well, the Father gave them to Jesus. John chapter 6, verse 37, and down in verse 39. Jesus purchased his sheep. That's how he acquired them. John chapter 10, verse 11, and Acts 20, 28, which says, Keep watch over yourselves and the entire flock. Speaking of, of uh, other leadership in the church, here's a command for pastors to keep watch as under-shepherds over the entire flock. And he says, be shepherds of the church of God, which he purchased with his own what? Blood. Jesus acquired his sheep through divine gift, divine election, and through his atonement where he bled and died to purchase them out of ransom. He ransomed us. He pulled us out of Satan's control, out of the world. He paid the price for us. J.C. Ryle wrote, The sheep are, in the highest sense, Christ's property. And just as a man feels a special interest in that which he has bought at a great price and made his own, so does the Lord Jesus feel a peculiar interest in his people. Second phrase we'll analyze, hear my voice. This is the effectual call where Jesus' word, the gospel, is accompanied by divine power that brings the spiritually dead sinner to life. Also bringing him or her to repentance and faith. Those things quickly follow because the Holy Spirit brings those gifts as well. So they hear his voice. Why? Because he effectually calls them. It's not a general call that goes out, bounces off ears. It goes into the person and changes them because it's accompanied by divine power and the Spirit. Next phrase, I know them. I talked about this in a lot of detail last Sunday. Jesus knows his sheep Intimately, he, he knows them as he knows the Father and as the Father knows him, verses 14 and 15. He calls his sheep by name, verse 3. J.C. Ryle again, Jesus knows his sheep with a special knowledge of approbation, interest, and affection. By the world around them, they are completely unknown, uncared for, or despised, but they are never forgotten or overlooked by Christ. Next phrase, they follow me. They follow me represents irresistible grace. Once effectually called by divine power in the Holy Spirit, the sheep will follow the good shepherd without resistance and without hesitation. Now, I've heard people describe their conversion to Christ as kicking and screaming. When God called me, I responded with kicking and screaming because I didn't want to leave my life of sin. Really? I'd question the legitimacy of anyone who says something like this. Literally. 
God's effectual call is the sweetest sound a sinner will ever hear in this life. It is the sweetest sound that will ever ring in the ears of someone who is appointed to save sovereign grace by God. That effectual call is laced with divine grace. When called, a sinner will gladly leave his or her life of sin to follow the Lord. He or she is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he or she discovered a pearl of great value, he or she sold everything he owned or she owned and bought it. You will literally, if you were effectually called, drop everything else to come to the good shepherd. Bottom line, no sheep is ever brought into the good shepherd's sheepfold kicking and screaming. Doesn't mean that we don't do some kicking and screaming through the sanctification process, right? Sometimes it's difficult, and sometimes we have trials and things that we go through. But no one is saved against their own will and comes into this thing going, I really don't want to do this, Jesus. They have finally found what their heart and their soul has always been looking for. They come of their own accord with great joy and eager anticipation of what the Lord Jesus, what the Good Shepherd will do next. How do the sheep follow the good shepherd? By faith. One more from J.C. Ryle. By faith, they listen to his call. By faith, they submit themselves to his guidance. By faith, they lean on him and commit their souls implicitly to his direction. Now let's look at our last S. The security. Verses 28 through 30. And this is just, uh, this is phenomenal. This section is phenomenal. Now it's like the other section wasn't. But this is phenomenal. Listen to the words of Jesus. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Verse 30, I and the Father are one. Now, these three verses are the definitive passage on the doctrine of eternal security. MacArthur wrote, Nowhere in Scripture is there a stronger affirmation of the absolute eternal security of all true Christians. Jesus' words reveal five realities that, that bind his sheep forever to God. First reality, I give them eternal life. I want you to notice the pronoun, I. And my kid's smiling back there because I had to make sure because he's really smart that that was a pronoun. What is I in this sentence? Dad, it's a pronoun. Are you sure? Because I'm going to look like a buffoon if it isn't. It's a pronoun. Go with it, Dad. Oh, here we go. Now he's got to add the technical part to it. It's a first-person pronoun, Dad. Rachel's like, just say pronoun. It'll confuse your people. We have these interactions in our house. I'm a real person, by the way. Notice the pronoun I. Who is it that gives the sheep eternal life? 
Well, I tell you, when I came to Christ, I tell you, when I put my faith in Christ, I tell you, when I did this, when I did that, when I, yai, 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 yai. It is I, Jesus, the good shepherd. It is Jesus who gives eternal life. It is not us. It is not our decision. It is not something we earn. It is not our work. It is Him. It is Him. He alone gives eternal life to His sheep. And this means that it cannot be earned. It cannot be merited. Since the sheep did nothing to earn eternal life, they can do nothing to lose it. If I, if I didn't bring myself into it, how can I bring myself out of it? Think of the logic of Scripture. Scripture is extraordinarily logical. If God brings me into it, then only God can bring me out of it. And this is something that he cannot do because that would be to go against his own will and word, which means God is a sinner and we're in a lot of trouble. If the sheep did nothing to earn eternal life because I give them eternal life, it comes from Christ, they can do nothing to lose it. What is eternal life? I've described it before. Simply put, it is a mercy-based, grace-centered, love-saturated, joy-filled, everlasting relationship with the Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, forever and ever and ever and ever. And it begins the moment you're effectually called. It is to spend all eternity in the presence of our glorious God where the fullness of His joy and true pleasure reign supreme. Psalm 1611. I give them eternal life. In other words, Phil, you did not give yourself eternal life when you made a decision for me. I gave it to you and I planned to give it to you way before this world and this galaxy and this universe existed. He loved me from eternity past. If you're in Him, He loved you from eternity past. And maybe you're not in Him yet, but maybe He's going to effectually call you, I pray. Number two, this is the other reality, second reality, they will never perish. They will never perish. Okay, logic. Eternal life is eternal let me think about that for a second. That must mean there's a pause in it. Eternal life is eternal. It does not end. It cannot end, which would result in what? The sheep perishing. Think of food preservatives. I know. It's dumb. It's all I could come up with. They're added to... They're added, right, to keep food from perishing. Things like sodium nitrite. You know, when you grab those hot dogs, you're all, it better not have nitrite in it. Or nitrites or whatever they are, or whatever it is. Sodium nitrite, sulfur dioxide, potassium sorbate. These are food preservatives. These are things that we should stay away from. You'll grow a third arm. It's scary stuff. But think about this. In eternal life, the hand of the omnipotent, all-powerful Son, verse 28, 
the hand of the omnipotent Father, verse 29, and the inner presence of the omnipotent, all-powerful Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, are the preservators or preservatives that keep the sheep from perishing. It is the Trinity's work, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit's work to preserve the sheep, and no one can stand against them. No principalities, nothing. They are the ones who preserve the sheep. Now, in these other circles, Roman Catholicism and other circles, they teach that you better preserve yourself. Well, if that's the case, I'm saved on Monday when I do a pretty good job. Tuesday, I lost it, and then Wednesday, I get it back. It's like a stinking tennis match. How horrible. How would you ever live in peace? No, they, they are the divine preservatives that keep the sheep from perishing. God saves and he preserves and we shall never perish. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. Third reality, no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. No one refers to any power that might attempt it. It might apply either to men or to devils. It is an affirmation that no man, however eloquent in error or persuasive in infidelity or cunning in argument or mighty in rank, and that no devil with all his malice, power, cunning, and allurements shall be able to snatch them from his hand. Snatch them means to seize as a robber grabs a hold of his loot. That's the Mental picture, the spiritual picture that Jesus was painting here for his audience. Right there, they were envisioning, because of the Greek, a robber stealing something that doesn't belong to him. Jesus holds his sheep so secure that no foe can surprise him as a robber does or overcome him by force. My hand means that Jesus has his sheep safely in his own care and keeping Fourth reality, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The sheep are held not only by the Son's hand, but also by the Father's hand, whom Jesus describes as greater than all. The, the idea here is that it is impossible to break the all-powerful divine grip of God Almighty. No one can break His grip. Calvin again says, This is a remarkable passage by which we are taught that the salvation of all the elect is no less certain than the power of God is invincible. In other words, our salvation is invincible just as God's power is invincible. That's extraordinary. Wow. Fifth reality. I and the Father are one. Here, Jesus refers to the, the mindset and goal that He and the Father share in relationship to the sheep. They are of the same mind and on the same mission to save and secure or preserve the sheep. Think of it like this. When it comes to the salvation and security of the sheep, the Son and the Father are one. It is their 
mission. It is their goal to save and secure the sheep, deliver them unto glory, into their glorious presence. Albert Barnes wrote, The Father and the Son are pledged to keep the sheep so that they shall never fall away and perish. It would be impossible for any language to teach more explicitly that the saints will persevere. That the saints will persevere. Wow. What a dynamic, extraordinary text. Closing. It is evident from Scripture that God has once and for all, settled the matter of eternal security. This is not the only passage that deals with it. This might be the definitive one, but there are many passages that reference this reality that the sheep have and joy. When God saves a sinner, He secures that sinner for all eternity, period. The matter is settled. We don't need councils to figure this out. We don't need councils to make rulings. The truth is, men will always reject this important doctrine because they do not believe the plain teachings of Scripture, nor do they believe in sovereign grace. It's tragic. It's sad. Quite frankly, for lack of better words, men are just hell-bent on earning their way into God's kingdom. And that is one of the greatest deceptions that's ever fallen upon man, that we think that we could do that. That is a great deception that has fallen upon man, not the reality of the security of the sheep. Question, do you believe what Scripture teaches about eternal security? Do you believe what John chapter 10 verses 22 through 30 says about it? Do you believe the text that we just looked at and really scratched the surface on? We could probably spend a hundred lifetimes studying that text. Do you believe the doctrine? Do you believe the scripture, what it says? If you do, it should cause you to live differently certainly more boldly. Amen? And if God has you in His love grip, no one, no one can take you from Him. That should give us such godly confidence and a boldness to live in this life for His glory. If you are the Good Shepherd's sheep, by grace through faith, no one and no thing can snatch you from God's love grip. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Nothing can separate you from God's love. Nothing can break His grip and snatch you away. Nothing. I'll end with a Excellent quote from my favorite preacher, Charles Spurgeon. This has been a quote fest. Uh, 
It's like those guys were here. Of course, I didn't use their inflections and everything. But I was telling Miles, I sent him a text and said, it's almost like Calvin and these other guys are preaching the message. He's like, that's good. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means they're better than you. Oh, okay. Yeah, they, they are, <laughs> infinitely. Listen to this phenomenal quote from the Prince of Preachers. Happy are they, then, who have received the character of sheep, for thus they prove themselves to be the chosen of God, and in the hand of Christ, and in His Father's grasp, they are eternally secure. Amen.